You're listening to the Esoteric News Briefs, your source for the paranormal, the mysterious, and the strange. Welcome back, goblins! You're listening to Esoteric News Briefs, Season 2, Episode 11, Bronze Age War Donkeys. Before we get started, I want to thank all my amazing patrons whose contributions help to make this show a reality. Specifically, I'd like to thank one of my newest patrons, Annie Kay, and my longtime highest tiered patron, Samantha Shaver, who, at this point, probably should just have her own honorary title or something. Patrons who pledge $3 or more each month will get access to extended episodes, and all patrons get access to episodes as soon as they're finished, rather than having to wait for the release date. If you would like to join, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash esotericbookclub, all one word. We've all seen fantasy depictions of Vikings wearing helmets with great swooping bullhorns mounted to them, right? Did you know that they were essentially made up for an opera? Better yet, did you know that they were based on actual helmets from Scandinavia, albeit helmets that are much, much older than the Vikings? The particular helmets that I'm referring to are known as the Vixo helmets, which were found in a peat bog in 1942. They are elaborately decorated and have horns crafted from bronze that sweep upward from the brow. Have you ever wondered what the inspiration for Loki's comic book helmet was? These helmets are the most likely contenders. The trick with these helmets is that they are solid metal, which can't be carbon dated. We can make estimations based on the metals and artistic styles used, but those are only rough guesses. That is, until 2019, when an employee from the National Museum of Denmark was preparing the pieces for photography. Now, I don't know the specifics, but it is said that some birch tar was found in one of the horns. This could have been used to help hold it to the helmet during construction, or it could have been used to affix feathers or hair to the horns after the fact. I'm not real sure. The important part is that this, quote, primary organic material could be radiocarbon dated, meaning that we now have a date for at least one of the Vixo helmets. The date that came back is rather astounding. 900 BC. That means that the design used by Wagner for his opera was really 1800 years older than the Viking Age. If you get the opportunity, you need to click on the link to this article. There's a good chance that you've seen these helmets before, but if you scroll to the bottom of the article, there is an artist's rendition of what they believed the helmets looked like when they were in use, and they're pretty incredible. The best way to describe them is if you were to combine a Roman gladiator's helmet, specifically the Hoplomachus, with Loki's helmet from the Marvel movies. It's a pretty cool reconstruction, and I think you all will enjoy it. Speaking of Romans, an amazing treasure hoard was uncovered in the La Suesta cave in Spain. Only this treasure was uncovered by an unlikely source, a hungry badger. Scientists believe that the artifacts were dug up by a badger looking for food during the 2021 snowstorm that paralyzed Spain last winter. These weren't just Roman coins, either. Included in the stash was currency from Constantinople, Antioch, Thessaloniki, and at least one coin from London. 
The date range of the coins spans from the 3rd century to the 5th, and experts believe that they were hidden in response to the invasion of the Swabians, a Germanic peoples who invaded the Iberian Peninsula in the 5th century. Since we're already talking about ancient treasure hoards, a volunteer archaeologist in Brandenburg, Germany, uncovered a treasure trove of Celtic gold coins, commonly known as rainbow cups. I'll be completely honest, I had never heard of these coins until this article came out. These coins are solid gold and range in size from 2 centimeters, known as staters, to 1.5 centimeters, known as quarter staters. They get their name from the strange half-dome shape, which was unique to the Celts and likely dates to the Iron Age, roughly one or two generations before the BCAD switchover. It's pretty obvious why they're called cups, but what about the rainbow part? In the Middle Ages, peasants would occasionally find these coins in their fields after a rainstorm. It was believed that they appeared wherever the rainbow touched the ground, hence the name rainbow cups. As if this weren't already impressive enough, this hoard of Celtic coins was uncovered in an area that was never under Celtic influence. The best guess by archaeologists is that this particular stash was a result of a trade network, specifically a single encounter, due to the fact that the coins are all of similar size, weight, and make. Jumping over to England, there has been a discovery of a carved wooden statue from Roman occupation. This two and a half foot tall statue was hand carved from a single piece of timber and was discovered in a waterlogged clay sediment. These anaerobic conditions are what allowed it to survive to this day. The lack of oxygen prevented rot and decay. Despite the degradation, this figure still preserves a good bit of detail, including what appears to be a cap worn over a long coif of hair, a Roman tunic that includes the fold where the fabric bunches over the belt, and the belt itself. Now, most people associated with this find are saying that it was interred as an offering to the gods. There's no real evidence for this besides the fact that it was buried and that it was found with some pottery shards that would have been contemporary to the statue's time period. Personally, looking at this piece, I think this may have had a more practical use. If you notice in the photos included in the article, the statue is very flat on the back. Considering the amount of detail in the rest of the piece, I don't believe that this was a case where the artist was working with an oddly shaped piece of wood. The skill is too high of quality for that to be true. To me, it looks like it was carved specifically to be placed against a flat surface, such as a wall or perhaps a sign. The depth of detail included in the rest of the statue makes me feel like this design element was a conscious choice. Check out pictures in the original article and let me know what you think. Now for a subject that I like almost as much as dinosaurs. Roman gladiators. Where do you think the last gladiatorial amphitheater was built? I'll give you a moment to think about it. Greece? No. Turkey? That's a pretty good guess, but no. London? No, the Romans abandoned that territory way before this was built. 
but you're on the right track. It's at the far reaches of the empire for sure. Do you give up? Would you believe it was in Switzerland? This amphitheater was discovered in Ergal, Switzerland, and if I'm butchering this name, please let me know. It was along the river Rhine, where it borders with both France and Germany. At the time of Roman occupation, this location would have been the northernmost border of the empire. The arena itself was constructed from an old mining quarry. No need to let a good open area go to waste, right? There was enough evidence found to definitively say that this was, in fact, an amphitheater. Evidence of the entrance to the stadium, brick and mortar work, plastered walls, and even the remains of the posts used for the Tribune's luxury booth have been uncovered. Additionally, two coins with the dates 337 and 341 AD were found, and they reinforced the established date of the building based on architectural elements. Based on these dates, this arena likely held some of the last gladiator matches in the Empire. Officially, these matches were outlawed in 404 AD because they conflicted with the ideals of the increasingly Christianized population of Rome. Granted, it is likely that the events were still held on the outskirts of the empire. News did travel slowly, after all. Now it's time to cry havoc and let's slip the... Donkeys? Of war? No, I'm not making a D&D character here. These creatures were specially bred by the Mesopotamians and were known as Kungas. They were a combination of domesticated donkey and wild Assyrian ass, which apparently could not be tamed. Like modern-day mules, the Kungas were sterile, so the breeding and domestication of these animals was a profitable business, especially since these animals pulled Sumerian war wagons. These renowned vehicles were like a combination of a chariot and an armored cart. It has long been speculated about what animal is depicted in the ancient murals pulling these war wagons, but officials could never narrow down exactly what the Kungas were. To make matters more difficult, the last known Syrian wild ass died in captivity in the 1920s, and it was far too small to be one of the famed Kungas. It seems that over the past 11,000 years, they had begun to grow smaller, likely in response to human encroachment on their territories. You're probably asking yourself why you've never heard of this creature. Well, they were only used for a few centuries and were quickly replaced by the horse. The current working theory is that you could breed horses in captivity quite easily, while breeding kungas required you to capture a wild ass each breeding season. This was no easy task, since they were faster than both donkeys and kungas, and were impossible to tame. So next time you make a dwarven paladin, tell your DM that you want their chariot pulled by war donkeys, and see how he reacts. Now that I have you hyped for war donkeys, I'm about to absolutely crush your view of the Middle Ages. Every movie we see about knights on horseback shows them riding these massive war horses clad in shining mail and barding. Well, the mail and barding part is accurate, but the horse's size may be a bit exaggerated. Okay, 
Maybe it's exaggerated a lot. Archaeological researchers have compiled data of over 2,000 horse corpses, ranging from the 4th century to the 17th century, and the results are quite surprising. The absolute largest animal that they have found came from the Norman period on the grounds of Towbridge Castle. That single horse was about 15 hands high, which translates to about 5 feet tall at the shoulder. On average, most horses were around 14 hands, or roughly 4.5 feet tall. The next step in this massive research project is to examine the measurements of surviving horse armor and to test the DNA of the catalog of bones. To me, this actually makes a lot of sense. If you have a taller horse, you run into some unique issues in war. Taller horses have longer legs, which means that they have larger target areas that could topple them and their rider. While the head and body of the horse could be protected, there's only so much that you can do to protect the horse's legs without impacting mobility. Second, the taller the horse, the farther away the rider is from the ground. This poses several issues. First is sheer gravity. If unhorsed, the rider is more likely to suffer injury. It may not seem like a lot, but that extra foot and a half of fall height can make a big impact. Pardon the pun. If you are on a taller horse, this places you farther from the enemy, which is good to prevent yourself from being injured, but it also means that it's more difficult to injure your foes in return. Sure, you could make your weapon a foot longer to give you more reach, but that also adds exponentially more weight, so you'll tire quicker in combat. Finally, you have the practicality of an animal of that size. Oftentimes, armies traveled, and food wasn't always guaranteed. Sure, horses can eat grass, but these are specially bred war horses, which means you'll want them well fed. If your horse is larger, they're bulkier too, which means you'll need to feed them more. While a massive horse will make you more visible on the battlefield, a more compact one may offer you more benefit in the midst of war. So while this new study may shatter our Hollywood view of the medieval warhorse, it actually makes a lot more sense in practical use. That's the last I have of major articles, which means it's time for... News of the Weird. Scientific studies are showing that the gravitational pull of the moon has greater effect on our planet than we realize. Most people understand that it controls the tides, plant growth, and aquatic animal life. But did you know that the Hadron Collider needs to be recalibrated based on gravitational influence? Then again, a shockingly high number of people measure influence by the number of views that they get on TikTok. Recent computer simulations by astrophysicists show that the Sun may have had Saturn-like rings around it in its early life. These rings of gases and dust may have helped shape the size and density of the planets in the inner solar system. Without these rings, the Earth could have formed into a super-Earth. Yes, that's really what they call it. Which would be larger and exponentially more dense. Of course, based on what I see on the nightly news, the people of regular Earth may be approaching that level of density anyway. 
Anthropologists frequently remind us that Neanderthals had a larger brain case than us lowly humans. But a recent study in Italy may show that bigger brains doesn't mean greater intelligence. Commonly known as the Devil's Trail, a series of footprints left in Paleolithic volcanic ash are being studied by scientists. The footprints are considerably older than Homo sapiens, so there are many speculations on what hominid species left them. The current working theory is that the tracks were left by a group of young male Neanderthal shortly after the eruption, one of whom actually began to walk towards the volcano. This begs the question, what is the Ice Age equivalent of, Hey buddy, hold my beer! Oddly enough, virologists have noticed that a specific portion of the population is at a far less risk of critical illness attributed to COVID-19. Those people tend to have a trace amount of Neanderthal DNA. Side effects may include hiking on volcanoes, cohabitating with Denisovans, and isolating yourself in remote cave systems. In December of 2021, a Chandlerville, Illinois man witnessed a black-furred Sasquatch cross the two-lane highway in two large strides. When interviewed, the man said, It jumped into the darkness, and I was kind of freaked out about it. I said to myself out loud, Fuck! It's a Bigfoot! That's it. That's the whole story. You're welcome. <sighs> I suppose that's as good a place as any to end this show. Uh, the Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. Thanks again to all my patrons. And until next time, remember, walk away from the supervolcano. Not towards it, away. <laughs>